Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 32 then. We're going to be starting in verse 22 today, but a little bit of way of review. In this chapter... We've seen so far what? We've seen Jacob, and he's split ways with Laban. He ends up having a vision. He's got this vision of, of the angels. He names the place Mahanaim. He ends up sending out some messengers. Hey, see if you can find my brother Esau, because Jacob's coming back to the land. He's at a place right here where the Jabbok River is a river that flows east to west, north of the Dead Sea. It's about a 50-mile-long river. It ends up coming down in elevation about 2,000 feet in that distance. So it's some real steep, rocky canyons that this river has carved out. Entering into the Promised Land, this is one of the passageways to get into the Promised Land. And as he's going toward the land, Canaan where God has called him back to, he knows he's going to be running into his brother, or he expects he's probably going to be running into his brother, until the messengers that he sent out, hey, see if you can find my brother, they come back and say, yeah, we found him. Okay, now that possibility of seeing my brother now looks like a reality. I'm going to be meeting my brother soon. And the last time I saw him, he wanted to kill me, and I haven't heard anything different. So he got concerned, he got worried, and we've, we've seen that he started praying intensely, help, deliver me from my brother. In the same evening of receiving that news, apparently that's the same evening he uh, starts to divide up his flocks. The plan is I'm going to send this flock with these servants, this flock with these servants as presents Mm -hmm. to go to my brother. Maybe that'll soften him up a bit. And in that same evening, he's also got uh, some of the stuff that we're going to see here. uh, Starting in verse 22, here's something else he's apparently doing this evening. Somebody mind reading verse 22. And he arose the night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the fall of Good job. All right. Nicely done, Gabriella. So here, not only did he send off the animals in their separate herds with their attendants, now he's crossing the river with his wives and with his female servants. Do you remember who the female servants are? That's kind of a strange way to put that, but that's the wording that, that we're given. Zilpah and Bilhah. Zilpah and Bilhah. Yep, Zilpah and Bilhah. These are mothers of some of his sons. Zilpah and Bilhah each bore Jacob two sons. So between the two of them, they've given him four of his 11 sons that he's got so far. We're going to see a 12th son down the road. Uh, But right now, 11 sons. And so his two wives, his two female servants... And his 11 sons, he gets them across the river. The river, most of the time in this area, the Jabbok River, is usually something that you can cross without too much difficulty. But it's going to take a little bit of effort on Jacob's part to get his family across, to get his sons across, to get his goods across. Um, I picture the old, remember those old Western movies with the covered wagon? And every once in a while they'd have to cross the raging stream or whatever. And the first wagon barely makes it. And you're like, oh, good, I made it. And then the second wagon comes across and it's like tips over. You know, and people are like, ah, oh, swim for their lives, you know. Uh, I don't know that it was that extreme. There are places, if you crossed in the right place, apparently it's shallow enough that it wouldn't be that perilous. Uh, but anyway, it, it is going to be worth, you know, moving's bad enough. And to move across a river, you know, with, with what they had back then. Uh, at night. At, at night, even. <laughs> so you've got a couple different things going on, a couple different elements there. So he moves them across the river. He crosses over. And in that same night, 
I mean, you would think, when is this guy going to go to sleep? He's not, he hasn't fallen asleep yet. He's done the big prayer, lots of praying. He's uh, sent the flocks over, and now he's sent his family over, and he's sent his goods over. At least we're going to see that in the next verse. Somebody mind reading the next verse? So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. Excellent. Thank you. So he sent basically over his possessions, his goods. He's got his family over. He is now alone on one side of the river. Everything else is crossed over. Mm-hmm. Everything else is between him and Esau. And I would be thinking, why am I sending all my prized possessions and all my kin, my family, they're between me and this guy who might want to kill me. <laughs> and I'm starting to question the motives of Jacob. Jacob, why are you doing that? Jacob, why are you sending over your wives and your sons between you and Esau? I mean, I get the animals. Those are a present. But why your family, your beloved family? And I'm starting to wonder, is he a coward? Is he hiding? Is he thinking, when I start to hear warfare over on that side of the river, then I'm going to escape out the back door, out the back door of this canyon? I'm going to get away? Is he a coward? Or maybe there's something else going on. Maybe he needs some time alone with God. Maybe he needs some time alone with God. This was a pattern that you see in Jesus in the Gospels quite a bit. Uh, For example, Matthew 14, 23 says, And when he, that is Christ, had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening had come, he was there alone. We see Jesus alone. We see him in a desolate place. And he's there to pray. In Mark 1.35, we have a similar circumstance. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. We also see it in Mark chapter 6. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. We find Jesus extracting himself from the distractions of everyday life and going off to solitary places to pray. By no means is it limited to those three passages. We have in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Are you starting to see a pattern here? He's drawing away. He's going to desolate places, and he's praying. And it came to pass in those days, this one's from Luke 6, 12, and it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Perhaps that's what's going on with Jacob here. Perhaps the desolation, the solitude, the quietness, having gotten everything across, and he comes back over to make sure everything's gone, everything's out, everything's across. Man, it's really peaceful over here right now. Maybe I should pray. Maybe I should should find out, God, is there anything you would have of me? Or maybe to make a request of God. God, I forgot to add in my prayer last time. Can I, or maybe to reiterate, God, what I asked you before, can I ask again? Can I please, and maybe it's a time for him to spend alone with God. On your papers, on the ones that you're filling out, the first one that you see there, I would propose this. Sometimes we need to separate ourselves from our distractions. Sometimes we need to separate ourselves from our distractions. If you've ever gone to a men's retreat, or for the women, to a women's retreat, oftentimes they don't take place in the middle of the city. A lot of times they take place in the mountains. And it's kind of nice to go there, and a lot of times they'll even advocate, hey, don't bring your phones, you know, because if you bring your phone, are you really detached from the distractions of life? No, absolutely not. And so you end up going away to these, you know, retreats. Maybe it's a weekend, maybe it's longer, 
and you come back and a lot of times you feel refreshed. You feel like, man, I had a chance to be alone with God. A lot of times they'll build into the schedules of those things as well. You'll go to breakfast and then after breakfast, there might be two hours where they just tell you, go hike the mountain, find a place alone, go there to pray. Be alone with God. And then you come back together and you have some activities or whatever. And then in the afternoon, there's usually another block of two hours. Go, hike again, find another place, go be alone with God. And it's those alone with God moments that I think are the most refreshing when I come back from a retreat like that. And it kind of reinforces kind of what we see here in this pattern. Jesus made it a pattern daily. What do we do? We go away on a retreat once a year, if that, right? (laughs) Maybe we need to spend some more time getting away from our distractions and seeing what God would have of us and just spending time in God's presence and praying. Jesus himself even, uh, this was even down to the night before his crucifixion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he took his disciples there, but you remember that he separated from them. He kept them at a distance and went off by himself to pray. So even then, in that moment of most need in his physical life here on earth, there was that need for being alone with God to pray. What else do we have as evidence that maybe Jacob has gone there to pray? Well, in Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, we do find an additional element. It says, yes, he struggled. This is speaking of Jacob. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He wept. So apparently there's some weeping going on that we're told about in Hosea that we don't get from the passage we're in right now. So Hosea, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing about this event, adds the additional element that he wept. So Jacob, alone, on the other side of the river, weeping, all alone with God, with his distractions and his concerns on the other side. In verse 24, somebody mind reading verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man rested with him until the breaking of day. Is that not unexpected? (laughs) He's alone on the other side of the river. All the distractions are over there. He's thinking, man, I get just to have time alone with God. I get to pray. I get to wrestle with God in prayer. And what happens? He's attacked by somebody we don't know the identity of right now. How is this person described in this verse? A man. That's all we have. That's all we're given. I wish we could find out his name. I wish somebody was there that could say, hey, what is your name? Oh, wait. Later on, we're going to find out Jacob asks him that exact question. Jacob will end up asking this attacker, what is your name? And the guy, he doesn't give his name. He doesn't identify himself which is kind of interesting. So we've got this unnamed attacker, and they end up wrestling. Now, one of the commentaries says, well, you remember Jacob when he moved that big stone? Remember when he went and he met Rachel and he moves the stone off the well? Then he was strong. You know, he was really strong. So uh, I can understand why Jacob could wrestle all night because he was strong. I think there might be a little something more going on than just physical strength going on here. But anyway, they wrestle, and how long do they end up wrestling? Yeah, until dawn, until the breaking of day. So his night's been pretty full as as it is. But here, he's got to end his night with a wrestling match. Have you ever seen a wrestling match? All right, in high school, I did a little bit of wrestling. And I'm sure it's not too different later on in life when you're wrestling or when you're better than high school students are. But I remember wrestling, and there was exertion. You exerted yourself. When it, when it was on, when it was like, go... You put everything in. It was 100%. And I tell you what, you can't put in 100% and last very long. He lasts all night. They're wrestling until the breaking of day. So he's wrestling with this unnamed attacker who came to him. By the way, in trying to ascertain the identity of, of this attacker, we don't have his name. It's never given. So what are we left with? Well, if you look at the text, there's only two people there. So if you were to call these people in as witnesses, right, 
you've only got two to interview because there's no bystanders. There's nobody else standing around. There's nobody else watching. You can't say, hey, I've got 40 witnesses and we can call those people into our court case and interview them. No, there's two people. There's Jacob and the unnamed attacker, whoever that might be, right? Well, the unnamed attacker isn't going to come in because he's an unidentified you know, suspect All right, at this point. So we have what? We have Jacob. Jacob is the only person there that we can call in to testify. If you're wondering, Jeff, are you going to tell me that we're going to sit here and listen to this talk all lunch and you're not going to tell us who the attacker is? I would say to you, I'm not in a better position to tell you who it is than Jacob is because Jacob is there. I wasn't there. Jacob was there. What ends up happening is at the end, Jacob identifies this unnamed attacker as God himself. Jacob says it was God himself. So if Jacob's your only witness on the stand and he says God himself, jury's not left with anything else. All right? God himself. But at first, you got to go, does this story fit with that? Could it really have been God? Well, let's keep that in mind as we continue to look further. One of the things that you'd want to keep in mind or one of the things you might want to consider is remember where we've already been. When we looked at Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, Abraham was visited by three strangers. Do you remember that? And Abraham just thought they were men, didn't know any different. But as the events unfolded, what happened? Two of those strangers turned out to be angels, and they went to rescue Lot. They went down to Sodom. They went down and blinded all the people of the city that came to attack. And it turns out they were angels. And who was the third one? It was the angel of the Lord. It was Yahweh. It was yod heh It was Jehovah. That was the third identity, the third person. And it was interesting to see, Abraham, how could you miss that? Well, apparently, God put on a disguise, all right? He was able to put on flesh, and to a person who lives in the flesh, you know, it looks like a guy, just like I'm a guy. So we had that situation there. You also find, if you look elsewhere, and like in Judges chapter 6, Gideon. Gideon ends up in the presence of an angel of the Lord, and he doesn't recognize that it's an angel of the Lord until after that incident. You have in Judges chapter 13, Manoah, who's the father of Samson, all right? Manoah and his wife, and there's an angel there. The angel of the Lord is there. But you end up, they don't know it. They think it's just another guy until, whoa, that was amazing what just happened. So you find these characters in the talk in the Old Testament who have this connection, who have this in the presence of God experience, and they don't recognize it's God. They don't recognize it's the angel of the Lord until after it's happened, until after it's unfolded. So in weighing those situations, and you look at Jacob's situation here, all right, then there is some additional evidence that this kind of thing could happen. And just like I said, as we've seen already in Genesis with Abraham in chapters 18 and 19. Verse 25. Somebody mind reading verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Wrenched. Oh, don't you love that word? Wow. That's a picture for you, isn't it? Wrenched. The word that's used here for whatever he did to Jacob's hip, uh, some of your translations will have touch. So you've got this span. You've got this range of, I would say, violence that's incorporated in using this word. The word does have a range, and it can be something simple. It's also actually interesting to see that this in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 26, when God touches a human heart, this word is used. This is the word that's used. So it could be that kind of touch. 
God touches a human heart. It's also the word that is used in Amos 9.5 when God touches the earth and it melts. <laughs> all right? So you can see the big range from touching a human heart to melting the earth. All right? So there's a lot of range there. Uh, strike or harm, a lot of them think that it's probably somewhere in that neighborhood of intensity. All right? It's also the word that's used in Job chapter 1, verse 19, when the wind struck the house and the house was destroyed by the wind. So uh, it can mean that there's some uh, force behind it. But here you have what? What do you have? You have a situation where Jacob and this unnamed assailant are wrestling without breaks, long term. And what does it say? And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, you might be thinking, well, who is being talked about? And in Hebrew, it's not really clear until you get to the end. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip. Okay, so it's Jacob's hip. So the unnamed attacker is the one that did the touching, all right? And the one who did the touching is the one who saw that he could not prevail against him. Who's the against? It's Jacob. So if you extrapolate all that back, you you see what? And when he, the unnamed attacker, saw that he, the attacker, did not prevail against Jacob, the unnamed attacker touched the socket of the hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he, the unnamed attacker, wrestled with him, Jacob. Now, a little concern. If this is God, how is it that Jacob could prevail against God? How is it that Jacob could put God in a spot where God feels like he has to do something extra to turn this fight, this wrestle match, in his favor? All right, so I have a little bit of concern about that. But I will say this. I'm a dad. I'm a dad and I have three girls. And my girls, they're growing up, but as they've been growing up, and a lot of you parents, you'll relate to this story. My kids love to wrestle. We would have lots of wrestling matches. All right, now they're getting older, and the oldest one's kind of like, eh, I don't really want to wrestle anymore, Dad. But here's what, here's what it would look like. We would take my bedroom, and we would take every pillow in the house, and we would lay the pillows all over the floor. And then we'd have our wrestling match on the bed, and we'd throw each other, or mainly me, throwing my kids off the bed onto these pillows, and then they would keep coming back. Well, it was never one-on-one. It was always three-on-one. So they, they would just dogpile on me, and I just would be spending my time throwing kids off of me as fast as I could as they would come back to me. All right? But eventually, eventually it's time to stop. All right? Eventually it's, it's time to move on with whatever else there is in the day. It, maybe it's been a half an hour, maybe more. And I decide, okay, everybody, it's time to be done. Well, you could probably guess how that's good. Kids, in that situation, they're never able to turn it completely off on, on a dime, you know, on a moment. So usually when I would announce something like, okay, we're all done, it's all done, I would get, like, the biggest one would go block the door to keep me from getting out. The littlest one would wrap herself around one of my legs to keep me from being able to make any progress toward the door. And the middle one would usually jump on my back and try to keep me there as well. And so, of course, this would go on for a little bit. And then usually there was this demand that my kids would make. My kids would usually say something, we're not letting you go unless you promise we can have ice cream after dinner tonight. You know, that kind of thing. There's usually a little bit of a bargaining that they would end up doing. And being that I like ice cream as much as I do, I would give in. And I would say, of course. You know, but I might not make it sound like that. I might, I might make it sound like, I'm not going to give you ice cream. Oh, yes, you are. And then uh, eventually I acquiesce and say, okay, well, I'll let you have ice cream if, you, you know, if we're all done. You guys got to put the pillows away, and then our wrestling match would be over. All right. Uh, sometimes I would have to employ a tactic, though, that was a little bit more than verbal. For example, if they were all over me and I had a hard time coming to an advantage, 
sometimes I could employ with my oldest one, she was especially ticklish around the neck. So if I could get to her neck and tickle her neck, I would get an advantage over her. On my middle one, if I could get to the bottom of her feet, that was her tickle spot. And uh, if I could get to the bottom of her feet, I would gain an advantage over her. And then the little one, it was her ribs. And she was the easiest one. If I touched her ribs, it was like an electric shock. She would jump away from me. So I had these tactics that I could employ. So here you have, I'm a dad. I can employ these gentle tactics because it doesn't require much on my part to get the effect that I'm looking for. And then eventually, you know, I would say the fight's over and they would say, not until you bless us, not until you give us some ice cream. And I would I would give them what they're looking for. Uh, read verse 26. Somebody mind reading verse 26. Actually, I'll read verse 26. Here's what I'm thinking it says. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you give me ice cream after dinner tonight. Is, is that what your version says? I know we have a couple different versions out here. <laughs> no, it's not. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I can't help but smile as I think of the situation of wrestling with my kids because it sounds like some of the same stuff might be going on here. I'll ask you another question, too. If I was wrestling with my kids, do you suppose that I, being much stronger than them, much bigger than them, could bring an immediate end in a violent way to the wrestling with my kids? Absolutely, I could. Am I going to do that? Absolutely not. A loving father knows the limitations of his children and is going to voluntarily behave within the parameters of what my children can handle. All right? If I was to implement something of that magnitude, it would be completely inappropriate for a father, and I would question myself whether I would be a loving father to do such a thing. All right? God, as our heavenly father, knows our limitations. Okay? And do you suppose if God was to touch the hip of Jacob, do you suppose he's limiting himself? I would propose to you he is. Because if God's touch can melt the earth, then popping a hip out of socket isn't such a big deal. <laughs> All right? And so I think that God is here wrestling with Jacob, and he's voluntarily limiting himself to the capabilities of Jacob and making maybe even Jacob feel like he's got an advantage that he actually doesn't have. But what we see here, here's one of the things I want you to see here. As uh, Victor P. Hamilton says, Jacob is a model of physical tenacity. Physical tenacity. And so number two on your fill-in-the-blank things there, I would say endure. Endure physically and spiritually. All right, let this physical illustration serve as a spiritual illustration as well we need to endure physically but more so we need to endure spiritually in fact the book of revelation when you're reading the letters to the churches in the first three chapters over and over again what do you find you find that god says he who endures to the end will be saved endurance is one of those things that god would call upon us to exhibit or to grow we should grow in our endurance our perseverance so endure physically and spiritually but you also see something there where Jacob says at the end of verse 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is kind of a tip-off to show that Jacob kind of has a clue that this person I'm wrestling with is superior to me. Because if somebody considers themselves the superior one in this match, they're not going to ask for the other one to bless them. It's the lesser that asks the greater for the blessing. And Jacob, asking for a blessing, tips his hand to us showing us that he actually is starting to recognize this person, this entity, is superior to me. 
And he, being the inferior, is asking the superior for a blessing. I won't let you go unless you bless me. The funny thing is, he's still wrestling. His hip is out of joint. He's only able to use one leg now. My middle daughter, before I knew better, she was probably two years old, and we were in the backyard, and she wanted me to swing her around, all right? And so I did. I took her by, the two, by two hands, and her arms are extended, my arms are extended, and I start turning and faster and faster until her feet come off the ground. And I'm spinning her around. She's holding onto my hands. I'm holding onto her hands as we're spinning, right? So her feet are off the ground, and she's flying through the air as I'm spinning faster and faster. And then I make the mistake of letting go of one of her hands. So now she's spinning by one hand, and I'm holding her by one hand. And I didn't know that the physical limitations of our bodies were such that that might dislocate a shoulder. And that's what ended up happening. There was a strange feel, a clunk of sorts, and then my daughter declared to me (laughs) in words and in pain uh, that something was wrong, and I ended up holding her and trying to figure out what happened, and I had dislocated her shoulder in doing that. (sighs) One of the low points in my (laughs) life as a father. It turns out okay, maybe 15 minutes later, it actually popped back in pretty much on its own without me actually intentionally trying to get it to pop back in but we were on the phone with people who knew more stuff than we did and we're describing what happened they're saying oh you've dislocated her shoulder here's what you need to do and without having to go to the extremes that they were describing she was able to get her shoulder back in but i tell you what a dislocated limb i mean that limb was pretty useless i mean it was held on by some muscles and sinews and tendons and whatnot but having a dislocated hip a leg you can't use you're on one leg now he's still wrestling He's still wrestling. He's still holding on. He's still clinging to God. He got a blessing from his dad by cheating, by lying, by being deceitful. This blessing he can only get by clinging. God wants to bless us, but he expects us to cling to him. And maybe Jacob should serve as an example to us, to cling to God, asking for the blessing. This reminds me of that verse where it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Those words, the ask, the seek, and the knock, the ask, seek, and knock are all continual. It's not a one-time thing. You don't just ask once. You don't just seek once. You don't just knock once. Ask, keep asking. Seek, keep seeking. Knock, keep knocking. All right? Here, Jacob is keeping on with that as he's clinging to God. Genesis thirty-two twenty-seven. Somebody mind reading that one? The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Okay. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Okay, another objection. If this is God, why would he, why would he have to ask that question? Doesn't God know? Does God not know who he's with right there? It's not that God doesn't know who this is. Remember Jacob's name, what his name meant? Remember back then, names meant something. Phew. Right. Grasping the heel. You remember, it was all the way back from birth. He and his brother, twin brothers, right? And there's this whole thing about birth order. And you find that in the birth, there's this weird thing about Jacob grabbing onto the heel of his brother as they're born. And it means supplanter, but it also means things like deceitful, deceiver, or cheater. So when God asked Jacob his name, Jacob is having to confess to his attacker, my name is cheater. My name is deceiver. God is asking Jacob his name, not because God doesn't know his name, it's because God is setting Jacob up for a name change. 
God knows his name, but in Jacob having to confess his name, he's also confessing, yeah, it kind of has been the description of my life. The cheater. I'm the cheater. My name? I'm the deceiver. I'm the supplanter. He's having to make a confession that's extracted of him by this person, this attacker, asking him, what is your name? So in making this confession or this admission that he's been a cheater, it's almost as if he's maybe agreeing with Esau back in chapter 27, verse 36, where Esau even said of his brother, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Isn't he rightly named cheater? Let me ask you this. How long ago at least was it since those happened? At least 20 years. At least 20 years. I think you can relate. I don't think I'm speaking from an experience that's unfamiliar to all of us where we have things that have happened a long time ago in our lives. We've had things that we regret from a long time ago, maybe even 20 years ago, maybe even longer, where it's become part of our identity in a sense. Maybe it's not something we talk about much, but maybe it's something that affects even the way that we live today, even the way that we think today, the regrets that we carry with us, and that the devil would love to whisper in our ears, hey, remember that time 20 years ago? (laughs) Here's one of those situations where Jacob, in confessing, admitting... Well, that my name means deceiver. My name means cheater. He's thinking back again over 20 years ago to those things that happened 20 years ago. Like he's never been truly free of it, right? What we're about to see here is God's going to change his name. God's going to give him a new name. If you look in verse 28, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. This is the first appearance of Israel in our Bible. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. God is announcing that what happened in the past 20 years ago, let that be in the past. You are cheater. You are deceiver. No more. New name for you. It's not cheater anymore. It's not deceiver anymore. Your name is Israel. How about your name? What are some of the things from your past? If your name was dictated by things that you've done in life, if your name was dictated by the way other people think of you, is your name loser? If your name is loser, God would say, no, I've got a new name for you. Your new name is winner. If you would say, my name is unloved, that's my identity. That's how I feel as I go through life. I'm unloved. God would say, I've got a new name for you. Your name is loved. Your name is loved. How about unwanted? You ever talk to somebody who they were born a decade or more after their last sibling and they say, well, I was a mistake. I was unwanted. And it's become something of their identity. God would say, no, you're not unwanted. You're treasured. How about a person who feels ugly? God would say, your new name is beautiful. How about a person whose old name is guilty? Forgiven. How about enslaved? They become free terrified becomes at peace or peaceful how about unwelcomed is now invited rejected has become adopted you realize we're all adopted in god's family there's only adoption that's the only way you get in god's family you're not born into god's family you're adopted into god's family we're all adopted how about bankrupt to blessed ridiculed to praised bullied to defended and forgotten to chosen. God has a new name for you. What would your new name be? Number three on your fill in the chart there. What is God's name change for you? Forgiven. Forgiven. (laughs) God's got a name change for you. And if you're letting those skeletons in the closet 
those dark valleys, those dark episodes in your life of so far in the past still influence who you are today, let God give you a name change and ask God, what would my new name be? And you take whatever identity that you associate with that past and you recognize God's got something to replace that. God's got a new name for you. Verse 29, the Jacob asked saying, tell me your name, I pray. <laughs> so he's asking the attacker, what's your name? And like I said earlier, he doesn't give it up. The attacker doesn't give it up. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. The attacker doesn't reveal who he is to Jacob. Verse 30. Somebody might reading verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Thank you, Esther. Here we have the third time that Jacob has named a place that we know of. The first time was Bethel, where God met Jacob leaving the land and going to Padanaram, looking for a spouse. He named that place Bethel. Then Mahanaim, at the beginning of this chapter, 32, verse 2, is when the angels, when he had this vision of the angels, right? He named that place Mahanaim. And here we have the third place that he's named that we know of, Peniel. It means face-to-face. Face-to-face. God met with him face-to-face. And now you're probably thinking, wait a minute, isn't there a passage that says you won't ever see God's face? If you see God's face, you'll die. There actually is. (laughs) In Exodus... In Exodus chapter uh, 33, verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Exodus 33, 20. So now you got to wonder then, what happened here then? Did Jacob see this guy's face? Well, no, it was nighttime. The fight's over by the time the dawn comes. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. The dawn is coming. The attacker says, okay, it's time to stop the fight. And Jacob says, no, not until you bless me. And then after a short exchange, he gets his blessing, and the fight's over. The fight's over by the time the dawn comes. That's kind of interesting in our lives, too. Sometimes we feel like we go through dark times and we're in a fight, but we look forward to a morning when the fight is over. We look forward to the new day when the fight is over. I think that's kind of fun there to to see that as well. All right, verse 31. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. By the way, if you have a dream, do you end up limping after the dream? (laughs) If you have a vision, are you going to be affected in your hip socket? No. What does that mean? That means that this really happened. That this really happened. And you see that down in verse 32, Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. This is probably something that affected Jacob for the rest of his life. Jacob probably limped for the rest of his life. Lots of commentators have things to say about this. Most of them go something like this. Jacob forever for the rest of his life had a reminder that he needed to rely on God. Jacob for the rest of his life had a reminder that he met God. Jacob had a reminder for the rest of his life that he needed to rely upon God. When my firstborn, before she was born, when my wife was pregnant with her, I prayed almost daily, if not daily, that God would make her rely on him. That she would always have to rely on God. And a lot of you know this story. My daughter, this is my oldest, Pearl, was born with cystic fibrosis. We didn't even know that until year three or four. And part of me was not asking God, why? Why would you do that? I, I didn't do that. I was like, what are we going to do, God? What does this mean, God? And it wasn't until later that I realized, you know, her condition is such that for the rest of her life, every day she's going to have to rely upon God. Every day, she's going to have to rely upon God, just as Jacob has a reminder that he has to rely upon God. And it's a daily reminder. So sometimes, and I would say this for filling the blank number four there, 
Let our disabilities remind us of his abilities. Because Jacob left there knowing he could rely upon God. Jacob left knowing that God could provide for him. In fact, if you look at the wording that Jacob gave at the end of verse 30, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. One train of thought is, I should be dead right now. <laughs> I just met with God face to face and I shouldn't even be alive right now. The other, the other suggestion is that earlier in the chapter, he was asking God, please preserve my life from my brother who wants to kill me. And that maybe Jacob is declaring here, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved from my brother, the threat that my brother is bringing my way. That maybe Jacob left this place feeling that God assured him, I am going to protect you. I'm going to provide what you need. And in meeting God, it left him limping, but the limp was a daily reminder that you can count on me to provide what you need, including protection from your brother. What was the blessing he was given? We're not told. One commentator says, well, it was the name. It was the name change. That was the blessing. Another says, no, it was probably the same blessing that was given to Abraham and to Isaac, and now it's probably given to Jacob. We just don't have the words for it, the actual wording for it here. We don't know what the blessing was. But Jacob ends up leaving this place with an assurance of whatever was happening behind the scenes that we don't have the exact wording for. Something happened. What was it? He met God. Jacob met God, and he has something to take with him. He has a new name and a new limp, and he's feeling okay. <laughs> All right, we're going to go ahead and end right there. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. We'll make it a quick one. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that your word would come alive in us, and we pray that you would help us, Lord, not to keep it to ourselves, but to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right.